grab a seat. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, also, my apologies for my sniffles this morning. You know, you spend years trying to teach your children to scare, and then they do. Um, and then uh, you get what they had, and so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what I can do. Jay told me a couple weeks ago um, that it's interesting to run the soundboard when I'm teaching because I start down here and I end up here. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and keep steady state. Uh, and, and get some more interaction from you all today and uh, save my voice a little bit. We'll see what we can do. Um, but today we are looking at Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. Pressing on. And this begins a new section in the book of Amos. We saw uh, last time um, the introductory oracle uh, of God, uh, his prophet. The judgment of the Lord is going out from Zion. We read the Lord is roaring from Zion. Uh, and it's, it's making, uh, as some commentators have called it, a noose of judgment, uh, that it circles around to the nations and then it gets tighter and tighter. And there's almost a dynamic in what we read in chapters 1 and 2 of the kind of judgment that you saw between Nathan, the prophet, and David that culminates in this great, thou art the man. And that's what uh, chapters 1 and 2 were about. Uh, Amos is, is sort of drawing near the people of Israel. He begins by speaking about all of the nations that surround Israel and Judah and how terrible they are and what judgment the Lord is bringing against them. And, and you can almost imagine the people saying, yeah, that's right. Uh, God's going to get those pagans and those Gentiles. And then it gets closer to Judah and then it gets closer to Israel. And there is this moment of exposure and realizing uh, that the people of Israel, God's covenant people, have become just like the nations, actually. Uh, and they are, too, uh, in danger of being judged. Well, today, in, uh, in chapter 3, we're going to see that the Lord begins to get pretty specific with the sins of his people. Uh, he's sounding a warning judgment, uh, a warning that judgment may be averted uh, if only the people will turn from their sin. And the Lord calls the pagan nations, even, to serve as witnesses against the cruelty of his own people, and he exposes their sin as worse oppression than they faced historically. Uh, today, uh, our passage is going to unfold in, in three discernible sections. You'll see, uh, w with some uh, overlap, you'll see the first uh, eight verses. Uh, the Lord begins, and he's really uh, telling the people that they need to listen. Uh, but the Lord again warns his people to listen to his word of judgment in verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 11, the Lord calls the nations to witness and to judge the sins of his own people. Uh, and then in verses 12 through 15, the Lord decrees destruction on the opulence and the idolatry of Israel. So those are the, the big sections that we need to see before we get going. Uh, I'm going to open in prayer today before we read this passage. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to do so by using uh, a prayer from John Calvin. Uh, one of the beautiful things about Calvin's commentaries, uh, some of them, is that they're interspersed. They were, they were originally delivered, his commentaries were delivered as lectures, and he would begin or end his lectures with prayers that had something to do with the passage that he was teaching on. Uh, and sometimes the people who were writing down his, his lectures uh, would record his prayers as well. And the one for Amos 3, uh, I think, is really apropos. And so we're going to begin by praying the words uh, of Calvin's prayer together. Uh, but let's pray. 
Oh, grant, Almighty God, that as you are pleased daily to exhort us to repentance, that you do not suddenly execute your judgment by which we might be in an instant overwhelmed, but, Lord, you give us time to seek reconciliation. Oh, grant that we may now attend to your teaching and to all your admonitions and threatenings and that we should become teachable and obedient to you. Make us then so to submit ourselves to you in the spirit of teachableness and obedience, that being placed under the protection of your Son, we may truly call on you as our Father, that we would find you to be so in reality. And you shall show to us that paternal love which you have promised, and which we have all experienced from the beginning, who have truly and from the heart called on your name, through the same, even Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, let's hear now together the word of God's prophet Amos as we read Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumult within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day I will punish Israel for his transgression. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Well, thus far, uh, the reading of God's word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. If you're just uh, coming in and joining us, we are looking at Amos chapter 3 today. Amos chapter 3, as, uh, as the Lord's prophet begins to speak more uh, about the sins of Israel. Uh, now, uh, as we look at this passage and its layout, it begins with another warning from the Lord, not yet dealing with the specific sins, the Lord is getting there, and he, he gets there uh, closer to the end, but it's more of a warning uh, of this, uh, this desire for Israel to cover their ears and not to listen 
uh, to the words that the Lord is speaking to them. And there's this, this warning that the Lord is roaring, uh, Amos says in, uh, in verse 8. He's, he's hearkening back to that beginning chapter, chapter 1, where the Lord roars from Zion. He's repeating himself, the Lord has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? As we look at this first section, verses 1 through 8, this warning uh, that the Lord gives to his people, what do you notice uh, about the way that the Lord interacts with his people? It might be different from the way that he interacts with the nations that he's already dealt with. We've seen uh, he deals with these six nations and then Judah and then Israel. So there's seven plus one, the perfect number, and then another one. Uh, in chapters 1 and 2, but the Lord deals differently now uh, with Israel. What grabs you about the way that he does that? Maybe the, the language that he uses or, or the uh, responsibility that he places on their shoulders. Bill. So this is, this is family language. I like the way that you've put that, Bill. Um, and, and this isn't the only place. In fact, th this family language shows up in verse, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 1 as well. Um, but it's, it's an idea, and I think uh, Bill is helping us to get to the crux of the matter here. Uh, and you said that the Lord is training his children. I think this is a good way to think about it. Uh, because what we see... Uh, is that far from, from having an out, uh, far from being the people of Israel, um, thinking, well, you know, we're God's people, aren't we? And so uh, the Lord should uh, be more generous, more long-suffering with us. He should let us get, get away with more things than he lets the other nations get away with. Uh, he actually connects his punishment of them to his relationship with them. Okay. What else do you see? What does he say in verse 1 about who they are? Okay. The people of Israel. What else? That family language again. Uh, what, was, what was the family? He says, uh, here, O people of Israel, uh, the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Um, this, is, this is a little bit different than even the first chapter where the Lord dealt separately with Judah and then with Israel. Uh, but when he's talking about the whole family of Israel, he's now lumping them together. Um, what does that help us to understand about the way the Lord looks at his people? Maybe in distinction from the way the Lord's people look at themselves. Mike? And, and he displayed uh, his power and his holiness in Egypt. I mean, this was the narrative that undergirded all of Old Testament religion, that these were the people who had been delivered from the Exodus. A thousand years later, they're still talking about the Exodus, and they're still looking back to what the Lord uh, did to bring his people out of Egypt, because this was the, uh, one of the seminal events that shaped their identity, that they were a people who were redeemed. They were 
taken out of the land of slavery. They were brought into a land and a, and a place where uh, they had a relationship with the Lord. Um, and it's this idea that, uh, that not, only are they, not only are they chosen by the Lord, it says, um, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, um, but you only, uh, we could say, have they, have they been redeemed. There are many other nations, and the Lord has chosen at this point not to redeem the other nations, not to exercise his saving power upon them. Um, but here is, here is this family uh, that the Lord is redeeming, and so this, this adds some weight. They ought to know who this God is. Tim, I saw a hand. Okay. Okay. In what sense? Where have they gone off to? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, uh, and so even at this point, um, they, they have, we talked in the first week about this uh, separation uh, between the north and the south. Um, and it was specifically even a separation, um, not just geographically, um, not just that there were some people up there, not, not even just politically, um, because they had now a divided kingdom between the north and the south, and they wanted to follow, follow uh, Jeroboam I and all of his descendants, but it was also uh, a distance spiritually, religiously. Uh, and they instituted new, uh, new ways of worshiping, uh, idolatrous ways of worshiping, in order to differentiate themselves from others in the south, in order to keep the people from the northern kingdom from going down to Jerusalem and yearning after where the God had said, uh, the Lord had said he would put his name, to keep them from going down there and then being united again. So there is, uh, there's not only a, a, a separation geographically and politically and religiously, there is, there is this division between the people. And yet the Lord still calls them the whole family, not 10 tribes, but 12 tribes. And you could go back and you could, you could look and uh, Genesis and uh, in the beginning of Exodus, especially uh, in Numbers, puts incredible emphasis on here's the whole number of the people that went down to Egypt. Here's the whole number of the people that came out of Egypt. And they're all lumped together. And, and this idea that it doesn't matter how we separate and how we run away um, and, and, and where we might go, the Lord still views his people as his people. Um, and I think that that's instructive for thinking, not just, you know, politically, geographically, uh, but think about the divisions in the church today. Um, we tend to see the church as fractured and splintered. And I, from what I understand from people who are not from a Western American context, uh, it's very strange the ways that, uh, the ways that American churches especially tend to splinter. I don't like what you're doing on this issue, so we're going to start our own denomination. And I don't like what you're doing over there, so we're going to start another denomination. Um, and you know, they're in, in every Presbyterian church, and ours is not different, uh, not, not individual churches, but denominationally, uh, you only get about a generation, about 30 or 40 years before people start saying, hey, this is all going to pot. We should do something new. Uh, and, then, and then it just fractures, and it just splinters. Uh, and we can see ourselves almost this, this division like, uh, like the northern and the southern kingdom. And we might even point to some of those divisions and say, that's idolatrous, and that's wrong, and, and this ought not to be, and there's a division that we ought to maintain, and yet the Lord has a different vantage point. 
The Lord looks at his people and he sees them as one family and one body. And, and part of our struggle is, is to see beyond those, those fractures and those divisions that we have to, to, to try and have the same view of the church that the Lord has. We might not all meet in the same building. We might not all agree on the same things. Um, but Christ prayed for his church. In John chapter 17, he prayed that they would be one, even as uh, the Father and the Son are one. Jesus prayed for an essential unity among his people. Um, and so, you know, however we may, however we may get uh, up in arms and, uh, and desire to splinter into a thousand different ways because of the little proclivities that we have, it's a, it's a good and a biblical thing to seek unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ, other people of the covenant community with whom we might have an awful lot uh, of disagreement. And yet if we are one in Christ, we are, we are one body together. There's my tirade uh, for this morning. But this is exactly what the Lord is doing. He's saying, look, you might, you might be separated here. You might have all these different uh, differences and all these distinctions. And yet he looks at them as, as one family. What else do you notice in these opening verses about the way that the Lord interacts with his people? How is that different from the ways that the Lord works uh, outside of his people? Yeah, and so let, let's keep tracking with that idea there. Um, this idea that the Lord does reveal what he does through his prophets. Um, is, that a, is that a blessing of the covenant or is that a curse of the covenant? To, to put it in very bold terms, we, we began talking about that in the first, um, the first class we were just talking about, how the, the prophets interact. Uh, that it's all about God's covenant uh, with his people and the prophets show up and they, they call them to receive God's blessings and to be aware of, of the curses, the fact that they are in this bond with the Lord. God has spoken. Um, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Would we put that in the category of blessing of the covenant or curse of the covenant? Ronnie? Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's a blessing uh, that the nations don't have when it's a blessing. It's also a curse that the nations don't have when it's a curse. Um, and, and some of this um, deals with the way that God's people interact with God's, uh, with God's prophecy, with his message to his people. Um, are you willing to listen to what the Lord has said? That's a blessing to you. Um, have you heard the word of the Lord and yet turned away from it? Well, that's a curse. In fact, that's, that's more of a curse uh, than having never heard the word of the Lord uh, and, and not turned away from it, if we could put it that way. Now, it doesn't leave the nations off the hook. It doesn't leave unbelievers off the hook. We looked at that again in the fact that the Lord begins by saying, yeah, I'm bringing judgment on all these nations that haven't yet received revelation from me because, Romans chapter 1, uh, what can be known about the Lord is clear. 
uh, everyone is without excuse. And yet, uh, Christ uh, uses that parable, uh, to whom uh, much has been giving, given, uh, much will be required. If we have heard much of God's word, much will be required of us. Uh, we are held accountable to the obedience uh, that the Lord requires. Uh, and, uh, and this idea that uh, where the word continues to increase and we continue to balk against it, we're really only storing up for ourselves judgment on the day of wrath. It doesn't, become a, it doesn't become a blessing if we hear more and more and more of God's word and yet get more and more hardened. Think about Pharaoh. He was all the more culpable because the Lord's word came to him more and more and more, and yet his heart got harder and harder and harder, and God's word became a curse to Pharaoh. Now, it became a blessing to the people of Israel because the Lord was speaking, and they were hearing it, and they were beginning to trust more and more in the Lord. And the Lord is shaping his people at the same time that he's cursing the nations, and he does it with the exact same means. He does it through the preaching of his word and through the, the prophecy of his people, and some hear and reject and are hardened and are cursed for it, and some hear and receive and are blessed for it. Does that make sense? Here we go. Not too many. Yeah. Yep. Ab oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and um, in this in a similar way, uh, the Lord still requires us to know the details of what He has done in the world. Uh, and and we could we could argue on um, which things are most important and, and least important, and um, you know, but. But certainly what the Lord has revealed, his saving work for his people, um, when the Lord says, you know, I, I have brought you up. He makes no mistake about it. He says, this is what I've done for you. I've delivered you to myself. I showed up. I revealed myself. Don't lose sight of what I did. And isn't it interesting when you, when you look through the Old Testament, um, this, this dynamic of the people's forgetfulness shows up all the time. Not just that they forget who they're supposed to be, but they forget what the Lord has done for them. Um, and the same dynamic shows up in the New Testament, uh, that we are to remember uh, the Lord our God, that we are to, uh, we are to go back and, uh, and remember the mercy that the Lord has had upon us. You think about uh, Ephesians. Um, let's turn there. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. Just a very small thing. Um, but Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there is a historical narrative that undergirds everything that we are to do and all that we are to interact with one another in our lives, and it's based on the saving acts of God. Even this very small thing, be, be tender-hearted toward one another. Uh, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so that means one of the most important things we need to do is we need to remember what God has done to forgive us. We need to go back over and over and over again and rehearse 
this gospel narrative. This is what the Israelites would have been held accountable for. But other things as well. Looking through the, the history of God's faithfulness and, and being thankful for what the Lord has done, recognizing that history doesn't flow out uh, just sort of haphazardly, uh, but everything works according, uh, and you see it in Amos. Um, oh, where is it? Uh, verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The Lord is taking hold of history and saying, it's mine. <laughs> I'm, I'm the mover and I'm the shaker of the nations. And so we can look at history um, and sometimes we can connect uh, specific dots. Very often we, we can't, uh, but we can look at history in mass and say, this is what the Lord has done. This is, this is the story of what the Lord is doing for his people and advancing uh, the cause of his people. Um, yeah, good. Anything else? Tim. Mm. How, how so? What are they judging? That's, that's another one of these great metaphors in the, in the Old Testament, especially. What does it mean to be a believer? It's, well, it's to walk with God. What does the Lord your God require of you, O oh man? But to do justly, to love uh, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And, and Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk with these others, but his way is the way of the Lord, and he walks with him. And this idea of walking with the Lord. And here are these people, and we spoke uh, earlier about the fact that they are living in such opulence and such material blessing and that is beginning to lure them in the direction of looking at their blessing to see whether or not the Lord approves of what they're doing. Are we blessed? Well, then clearly God loves us. Clearly God loves and approves everything of what we're doing. And the Lord is coming and saying, let's just think about it for a little bit. Can two people walk together if they're not in agreement? And, and this is a judgment call. It, it seems, you know, when we're, when we're looking through uh, verses 3 through 6, it almost seems like this random collection of, of questions, just rhetorical devices to say yes, 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 yes. But these are highly structured. It begins with this idea of agreement. And then you notice that every other one of these questions has a pair. That first one is the only one that doesn't have a pair. And so that should stand out to you when you see that. Um, very often, uh, biblical poetry works in a series of parallelisms. Uh, if there are a series of pairs and one thing doesn't have a pair, that's where your attention ought to be drawn. Uh, and there are these pairs in all of the other verses, and the pairs actually work from a sort of cause and effect. There is an intensifying of the pairs of questions. Take a look. Um, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Well, of, of course not. Uh, he, he doesn't scare away the prey. Um, there, some commentators uh, connect this, this roaring, the particular word for roaring, for the pouncing of a lion. Uh, that the lion creeps and, and crouches silently until it gets close enough, and then just as it's about to leap, it roars, so the animal turns and freezes, and it gets him. Uh, so this is, this is the roar of the pounce. Would a lion do that if they had no prey? No, 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 no. Okay, well, let's intensify that. Well, does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? Not just the pouncing of the lion, but the devouring of the lion. There's this intensification. Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth if there's no trap set for it? Well, does a snare spring up from the ground if it's taken nothing? 
Um, well, no, th this idea of not just uh, a potential, uh, but a taking of the bird. Um, and, and this idea is that uh, the people have fallen into a trap of their own sin, uh, that they are ensnared. The lion has roared, and he is about to pounce. Uh, he is about to take them, and, and, and there is a crisis coming. That's the first question. The second idea, that they're in a, a problem of their own making, uh, that they have set a, a trap, uh, and it's springing up around them. And then is a trumpet blown in the city, and the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The trumpet is the warning cry, and the disaster is the reality. Now this Again, it's this intensifying, and, and Amos is getting them to realize that when the Lord speaks, you need to listen. Currently, the people are at the standpoint, or they're at the stage of warning. They're at the stage where the lion is about to pounce. They're at the stage where the trap is about to spring close. They're at the point uh, where the trumpet is being sounded. And whether or not they respond appropriately to the Lord will determine the future outcome for the people. That they're, they're standing on the brink of disaster coming upon the city. Okay. Um, does the Lord still punish his people, uh, his covenant people, does the Lord still punish his covenant people in the same way that we see here? If so, why or why not? He says in verse 2, You only have I known of all the families on the earth. Therefore, because I've known you, because you're mine, uh, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This, by the way, is the, is the frame around the entire passage. It's, uh, it's mirrored in verse 14. On that day when I punish Israel for his transgressions. This is what holds the whole thing together. Because the Lord knows you, he will punish. Does the Lord still do this in his church today? Or as believers uh, and, uh, and united to Christ, is everything happy, 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 spiritually speaking? Tim. Okay. Okay, he's still training us. Does he do anything else? Is it only training? <laughs> okay, okay, carrots and sticks, but that, that has the same outcome, Mike. And so it, it is a constructive uh, judgment, but it is still a judgment. Um, is God's judgment against his covenant people ever destructive? Not to build up, but to cut off. I would say yes. Um, now, what we have to think here, uh, what are we talking about when we're talking about covenant people? Um, that there is, in Israel at this time, there were many people who had the sign of the covenant, but not the reality of it. And we need to realize that in the church, there are people who have the sign of the covenant, but not the reality of it. Um, one of the commentators I read said that uh, the God's judgment in the church, in the realm of the covenant people, happens in two ways. It happens both to purge and to chastise. We've been thinking mostly about chastisement because we think about ourselves individually um, and we think about, um, well, 
if you are savingly united to Christ, no, the Lord will never cut you off. And he tells us that. The Lord knows who are his, and all those that the Father draws to the Son, uh, he will keep. And no one can snatch them out of the hand. They cannot be separated. If there's a, if there's a true covenant um, uh, binding, a, a joining, a union between the individual believer and Christ. But God's judgment often comes against the external covenant people just as it came to the external covenant people in the Old Testament. Sometimes we see this in, in churches uh, that outwardly profess that they belong to the Lord and then go in a wildly different direction. Uh, in John uh, chapter 15, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Uh, now, I think Jesus is not talking about uh, taking true believers and separating them from the life-giving branch, but he's talking about false branches that never bear any fruit, that show no signs, no fruit in keeping with repentance, that are not savingly united to Christ, the life-giving branch, but merely have an appearance. And he says they are cut off. They're purged, and God's judgment often does that. Brian? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it's important to understand, too, when we begin to read the New Testament, that the Lord often speaks to churches generally, and then he begins to speak about the judgment that's coming um, and, and about uh, chastising, and, and we need to realize that it's, uh, in some ways, it's like the people that came out of Egypt that's a mixed multitude. Even within the church, even the people that might be joined uh, on the fringes, um, we need to have some discernment about that. I hope I'm not moving too far in, in the wrong direction here. Um, but, but John, who wrote down and, and recorded these words of Christ in John 15 about the, the vine and the branch and being cut off, he's the same one who later talked about those who went out from us, but they weren't ever really a part of us. He's talking about those who have been purged by the, the judgment of God. They've been, they've been removed from the body. They've left the body. Um, and what that shows is they were never really a part of the body anyway. They were they were joined, uh, but they weren't united. So just, uh, yeah, something, something for us to think about. But this idea that, um, that judgment comes in, in a sense of purging and also in, in chastisement. Let's move on uh, now beyond this first section into the next section. Uh, verses 9 uh, to 11. Um, the Lord is summoning 
you see here, the nations to witness and judge the sins of his people. He says um, in verse 11, the adversary uh, will surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. This is one of the, uh, the catchphrases in this little section. You see this idea of strongholds in verse 9. The claim to the strongholds in Ashdod. Where's Ashdod? What nation is that a part of? Philistia. So we're, we're looking back to the Philistines that we saw again in the first chapter. And to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, obviously in Egypt. Um, and, uh, and then we see strongholds again, the end of verse 10. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Uh, and then in verse 11, that your strongholds will be plundered. So there is, uh, there is uh, this, uh, again, this parallelism. Two strongholds, two foreign strongholds. Now, a stronghold is uh, a military outpost. It's where the army is gathered. It's where they, it's where they stay. It's where they keep their troops and, and uh, where the people would rally for battle. Um, and in the time of Jeroboam the Great, Jeroboam the Second, which is uh, the, the king who's reigning in Israel at this time, uh, there were lots of, of new strongholds and greater strongholds. And as the nation was expanding its boundaries, uh, they were fortifying their strongholds. This was a time of, of, uh, of military conquest, and, and the military might of the nation was growing by leaps and bounds. And the Lord is saying that there is a conflict coming, two foreign strongholds, and then two judgments against the native strongholds. And so he's bringing the nations in um, to, uh, to judge them. Now, uh, what do you know um, about Ashdod and Egypt that help us to understand what the Lord is, is saying here? What do we know about uh, the Philistines and their history with the people of Israel? Not good, <laughs> says Tim. It's not good. They're enemies. Yeah, these are, these are the historical enemies of, of the people of Israel. I mean, this goes back as, as far as coming into the land and, and driving out the Amorites, and the Philistines are always there. In the days of, of previous military conquest, especially when you read the stories of David and of Saul, the primary enemy of Israel are the Philistines. And the way military conquest happened at, these, uh, at this time uh, was not that you went in and you slaughtered everybody you could, you went in and you slaughtered everybody you had to, and then you took the rest of them and you made them your slaves. That's what you do. Uh, and in fact, you see that with, um, uh, with David and Goliath. And he comes out and he says, uh, send your best warrior, and if I win, you will be our slaves. And if you win, we'll be your slaves. And that's what was on the line. It wasn't, it wasn't genocide. It wasn't wiping out the other people, but it was enslavement. And that was what they were all about. Now, we also know the same thing about Egypt, right? Here's the other uh, historical enslaver of Israel. Uh, and uh, notice what the Lord is saying now. Uh, the Lord is using uh, Philistia and Egypt, and he's saying, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see what? Well, see what's happening among my own people. What's happening among the people uh, in Israel? What's the text say? The end of verse 9. See the great tumult within her. See the oppressed in her midst. They don't know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. What do you normally store up in your strongholds? Military might. 
riches, tank, yeah, tanks and ammo, chariots if you've got them, um, and all of your, uh, your spears and your shields and your swords, that's where you keep the things to protect your own nation. Well, what's happening in their stronghold? Yeah. They're just piling up iniquity. And not just any old iniquity, uh, but they're piling up iniquity that actually is oppressing the people that the stronghold was supposed to be caring for and protecting. Now, we have seen the enemy, and it is us. This is the problem in Israel. And, uh, and what the Lord is doing is he's calling these historical enslavers of Israel to come and see the way that sin has turned Israel in on itself. This is a perfect picture of the way that sin works, by the way. He says at the end, um, therefore, excuse me, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land. Well, it's easy for the adversary to surround the land when the people are all fighting and oppressing within the land. If they're so busy enslaving one another, they're not even going to notice when Philistia and Egypt show up on their doorstep and begin to cart them away. That was a sin, by the way, of the Philistines in chapter 1, um, verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And the Lord is saying it's going to happen again, but you're not going to notice because you're so busy oppressing yourselves uh, that you don't notice the way that, uh, that others are going to come and oppress you. I think there's a, a beautiful parallel here. Uh, well, maybe not beautiful. Maybe that's the wrong word. A terrible parallel here. Um, in Titus chapter 3, we learn the way that sin works in our own hearts. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, <clears throat> led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What does sin do? Well, it, it makes us not only odious in the sight of the Lord, but it makes us turn on one another. Right? There is a, a horizontal aspect to our sin, uh, and, and we reap what we sow. He says that, uh, Paul says that we were passing our days in uh, passions and pleasures, in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is what sin does to us. It makes us like the people of Israel uh, who don't need a foreign enemy to come in and oppress them because they're doing a fine job of that themselves. Thank you very much. Uh, this is the idea of, of the way that sin uh, manifests itself uh, within us. Anything else you see in that? Uh, that middle section there, verses 9 to 11. Anything just reach out and grab you? Maybe not. Okay. Uh, we also see between these last two sections uh, the way that the Lord is uh, tearing down the false securities that his people have. So, verses uh, 9 to 11, uh, the false security is military might. Now, what are the other false securities that the Lord is, is tearing down, the things that the people are trusting in, which have no power to deliver them? The riches? Yeah, absolutely. We see that. Um, verse 15, 
I'll strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So here you have an ancient people uh, with enough leisure and enough opulence to have multiple summer homes. I'll live here in the winter, I'll live there in the summer, and, and this is the sort of thing that, you know, if you've, if you've got a friend with a summer house, they're doing all right. Uh, and in Israel, um, you know, the, the same sort of thing uh, is, is the idea here. Now, um, actually, uh, archaeologists have done some excavations uh, in uh, the city of uh, Tirza, T-I-R-Z-A-H, um, uh, which is in, uh, around Samaria in the north. And they found different layers of foundations of homes from different, uh, different time periods. And uh, about 100 years before uh, when Amos is writing, um, it seems that most of the homes, not all of them, but most of the homes are about the same size. The chunk, ka chunk, ka chunk. It's like one of those housing plans that you drive through and they're all, you know, the same builder came in with the same plans and they're all exactly the same. Well, about 100 years before the reign of Jeroboam the Great, they were all just about the same. Uh, and a little bit after the reign of Jeroboam the Great, there is a huge disparity in most of the towns, or at least in the town that they were looking at. Um, there were these really, really big dwellings, like far bigger than most homes of that time, and squished next to them were all these tiny ones, these little huts, these little, little hovels almost. And you can see, as you look through literally the, the layers, the foundations of time, you can see the oppression happening as, as some people are squeezing out the poor in the land and they're relegated to these tiny little things and they're just growing more and more and more. Now Isaiah has a, a similar condemnation of the people. Woe to you who add house to house until there's no more room to dwell in the land. You're just growing and you're, you're expanding and well we need this wing over here and we need the courtyard over this area uh, but it comes at a price. It comes at a price of taking the poor that are in the land and squeezing them down. And so again, uh, they, they have um, not only trusted in military might, but that military might has become a force to oppress the people. And they're trusting in their riches, but the riches uh, are part of God's condemnation. He says, I'm going to come against your winter house and your summer house and your ivory house and your great houses. Um, and, and this is something that they're trusting in, but actually becomes a tool for oppression within their midst. What else? What other false security is, is the Lord uh, destroying here? Alicia. Idolatry. Where do you see that? Yeah. 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 Now, what do we know about the significance of the horns of an altar? Remember any biblical stories where the horns of the altar play in uh, to something important? Somebody grabs the horns of the altar. Why do they grab the horns of the altar? Safety. Safety. Sanctuary. Uh, imagine, you know, the person running in to where the temple is and to where the, uh, the sacrifice is to the holy place and holding on to the altar and basically claiming immunity. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm in the holy place. You can't take me and you can't harm me here. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to come to Bethel, which, by the way, is another house. If you translate that, that's the house of God. And so the Lord is saying, I'm coming against the house of God and the house of ivory and the house of uh, winter and the house of summer and all these other things. Uh, the Lord's saying, I'm just going to cut off the horns. <laughs> I'm just going to get rid of it. 
Uh, because the idolatrous practices that you've created for yourself can't save you. And they're not something that, that will deliver you on the day of, of God's wrath when you think that you can hold on to them uh, and you don't. No, you can't, he says. I'm going to punish Israel for his transgressions. And he uses the same word there. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, the horns is, is almost a, a double entendre here. Um, the, the altars that will, were set up, the idols that were set up uh, initially in Bethel and in Dan took the form of a bull. Very similar to what you see coming out of, uh, of Egypt and at Mount Sinai while Moses is receiving uh, the Ten Commandments and the, and the Book of the Law from the Lord, and the people are creating a bull, but they called it Yahweh. They, they created a golden bull, and then they said that they were sacrificing to Yahweh. Well, the way that this would have worked, they, they would have told themselves, of course, no, 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 we're not making an idol of Yahweh, the one true God who can't be seen and, and doesn't reveal himself. We're not doing that, uh, but we're making a throne almost. Uh, that Yahweh is the God who rides on the back of the bull, and it speaks of fertility, and it speaks of, uh, of vigor, and it speaks of the sorts of things that you want a, a, a manly warrior God to be. In fact, it's exactly the same image that the Baal worshippers used. He was a fertility god who rode on the back of a bull. And so they're now worshiping the Lord in the image of a bull with its horns. And there's this double entendre. I'm going to cut off the horns of the altar uh, because it's, it's been idolatrous from the start, from the very moment that you began. Uh, and don't think that, that worshiping the Lord in, uh, in ways that he has not sanctioned, don't even begin to imagine that that is a safety net for you, that you can cry out, oh, no, 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 we've, we've been offering so many sacrifices. But the Lord might say, well, who are those sacrifices going to? They're not going to me. They're, they're, not, they're not real uh, religion in the way that I've called you to have it. Uh, and so the Lord is going to punish it. Now, you often see uh, in the prophets a note of um, hope, uh, a note of hope in, in uh, the prophets. Um, and it's tempting to think that that note of hope shows up in verse 12. Uh, but it doesn't. Um, Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Uh, what's happening here? Is this a rescue or is that not so much a rescue at all? Chris? So you've got an ear. Okay, good. All right. The, the lion has roared and the lion has devoured and you saved an ear. Um, now, the reason that's important is because in Exodus chapter 22, uh, there are laws dealing with how do you care for someone else's livestock. If someone gives livestock to you to hold on to, they're going on a long journey. I need you to watch my flock. Uh, and then some of that livestock comes up missing. How do you account for it? Uh, and one of the things that it says in, in Exodus 22, verse 12, is that if, uh, if there is uh, an animal that's been devoured by a beast, you need to gather up whatever remains you can to show that it was devoured by a beast. If you've got some feet that were gnawed on uh, by a wolf uh, or by a lion, you better hold on to those feet, not because you've saved the animal. The animal is gone. But you're saving your own neck, and you're saying, look, uh, this is what happened. Um, and so the Lord is saying, judgment's coming. 
The lion has roared. This is sort of ironic. It's not really a rescue. But what is left of the people? What are the only trace remnants that we find? This is not the message of hope that we, we long to see in the prophets, that judgment is coming and that the Lord will save for himself uh, a people who will be a remnant for him, and they will rebuild in the land, and, and they will offer true offerings and right sacrifices, and they will be with the Lord. That's not what's, what's happening here. What is left of the people? And what does it say about them? Chris? Yeah, it shows us what's left over is where, they've, where they have put their time and their effort and what they thought was important in the world. And it is, it is this picture of opulence, again. You know, we've got this, um, this book that we read with our kids, Life in Colonial Times. It's great. Um, just a, a little cartoony book, but it tells you facts about how colonial life was and how hard it was. And one of the factoids in the book uh, is that uh, if you were a colonial family, uh, probably when you sat down to dinner, your father had a chair, period. <laughs> that was it. And if you were one of the children, you had to stand because chairs were hard to come by. They're, they're hard to make. Uh, it requires some skill. Uh, maybe your, your dad could cobble out a bench eventually, but probably everybody but the father had to stand. Um, and here are these people in Israel, and they've got couches. And they've got beds. This is the lap of luxury. And they have just indulged themselves uh, to the full and the Lord says, no, you're all going to be taken away. And the only thing will be, that will be left will be the trace remnants that there was somebody here. And somebody will come along and say, man, these people really lived large, uh, but there will be nobody left to speak about it. Um, and, and I think um, maybe a rhetorical question because we're, we're now out of time. Um, we, we began by talking about whether the Lord still judges, whether he still judges churches, uh, denominations maybe, uh, individual churches, whether he judges nations, uh, whether he judges formerly faithful people who are now believers in name only, uh, and what that looks like and, and what God's purging uh, work looks like. And I think it's interesting for us to think, if the Lord were to do that with us, with the American Protestant church, what would be left? Uh, what are the vestiges that would remain? Uh, are the things that we thought were so important uh, that instead of spending our time in mortification of sin and reading God's word and attending unto prayer and, and giving ourselves to spiritual disciplines, what are the things that would be left of, of the American church? I think it's frightening uh, to think about. Um, but yeah, the, the, the passage does not end uh, on a high note. Uh, but it does cause us to remember the Lord is still giving them 
opportunity to repent. There is grace in the Lord's warning. Uh, and uh, there is this, uh, this message that uh, the Lord continues to repeat in the New Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, if the trumpet is sounding, if the lion is roaring, today is still the day. Uh, and there's also the promise that we find that if today is the day and you call upon the Lord, crisis is averted. Uh, and you don't receive the judgment of the Lord. There is a, there is a promise that we find in Christ. And that's why we begin with that prayer of, of Calvin, uh, that the Lord would cause us to lay hold of Christ and so would save us from the judgment because those who call upon Christ receive not judgment, but God's fatherly love and his care. Maybe his discipline as he continues to chastise his children and to train them in righteousness. But we don't receive the judgment because Christ has taken it for us. And there is a warning here, uh, but in that warning there is a promise. And so let's uh, end there and let's uh, spend some time praying together. O oh Lord God of uh, righteousness, goodness, and, uh, and judgment, we thank you that you have caused all the sins of your people to fall on Christ on our behalf. And O oh Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts sensitive and our ears sharp to hear the call of the Lord, to turn to you while yet there is time. We thank you that uh, your people uh, gathered together uh, have turned to you. And so many in our midst are calling upon you in truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bind up our hearts, make us always more sensitive to hear your word, never to turn aside from it, but to be, uh, to, to be pliable before you uh, and to be uh, sensitive to the moving of your spirit and the speaking of your word. We pray that we would hear it and receive it with joy and gladness, that you would train us uh, for righteousness, that you would build us up in reproof uh, and rebuke by your word. Uh, that we would be equipped for every good work. For the sake of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.